Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have opportunity to look into your word, and we thank you that it is your word, that it is inspired by you, it is God-breathed, and it is powerful. We submit our lives to your word and ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would accomplish your will through your word in our lives today. I ask that you would equip me and enable me to present it in such a way that it would not be my thoughts, my ideas, but that it would be yours, and it would be the words that we need to hear, that we would be sensitive to hear it and to heed it. We ask that you would enable us by your Holy Spirit to apply it, that we would live out the truth of your word on a daily basis, moment by moment, fully surrendered to you. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I ask you to turn to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37. We're going to do something that we haven't done in a while. Hopefully for the rest of the summer. We're going to work through a little bit of a character study on a very well-known Old Testament individual, Joseph. I do this for several reasons. One, because... It's nice to have something that is practical and applicable and sometimes we skip over the narratives of the Old Testament and I as a pastor have invested a lot of time in preaching from the New Testament and actually it's been a while since we've done anything as far as a series in the Old Testament and I thought it would be a real good practice for us through the summer here to take not so much looking at the character of Joseph, although we will do that, but looking at some of the principles that we can derive from the life of Joseph. And what we're going to do simply is work through one passage at a time, which speaks of Joseph, which is just the narrative. And you all know much of the narrative of Joseph. We're going to look a little deeper than that. We are going to look at some straightforward principles and applications, but we're going to try to go a little bit deeper into the the principle side of thing without losing the clear, direct truth. So how does this apply to us today? After the cross, in Jesus Christ, in 2018, How do the principles from Joseph's life apply to us? Now, Before I read, I want to give you a little bit of background of Joseph. Some of you will know this. Some of this you will have forgotten. I had to remind myself or refresh my memory in some of this. But just so that we know who we're looking at, and it does play into what we're looking at, because Joseph is the product of his history. He's the product of his parents in more than one way. And we'll see that even as we look into the first 11 verses this morning of Genesis chapter 37. Joseph was born to Jacob. Jacob later had his name changed to Israel, the father of the nation of Israel. So he was born to Jacob and to Rachel. How many of you remember their story? Jacob and Rachel, you remember their story? Okay, a few of you remember their story. Good. Jacob falls madly in love with Rachel. It is the textbook romance. It's beautiful to see. And Jacob agrees to work for Laban for seven years so that he can marry Rachel. Seven years. And I don't know exactly how this worked, but at the end of the seven years, Jacob goes to marry Rachel and somehow is tricked into marrying Leah. That would have been a strange wedding ceremony. I don't know whether they didn't lift the veil until after it was all all said and done, but he didn't realize and. Jacob marries the wrong lady, in his mind anyways. But Jacob agrees to marry Leah after having worked seven years to marry Rachel. That seven years would be what they call a bride price, which is similar to a dowry, but it's on the other side. It's the other way around. He gets tricked into marrying 
Leah, Rachel's older sister, and he agrees to work another seven years so that he can marry Rachel. That's 14 years of labor just to marry her at $50,000 per year, today's monetary value. That would equate to Jacob paying Laban 700000 to marry Rachel. Man, there is no price too high for the right bride. He must have been in love. As a matter of fact, it says of Jacob and of Rachel in Genesis chapter 29, verse 20. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed only a few days to him because of the love he had for her. A few days, seven years seemed like a few days. I'm sure 14 years felt a little bit longer. Now Jacob and Rachel, they get married, and they have a bit of a rocky road in their marriage relationship. Rachel is unable to conceive a child, but Leah, Jacob's first wife, does. And that is a major bone of contention for Rachel. And Rachel, in being unable to conceive, comes up with the idea that she should marry her handmaiden to Jacob, or she should offer her handmaiden to Jacob to be married. So we throw in Rachel and Leah's handmaidens. They both marry Jacob. So Jacob is in love with Rachel and is married to her, but is also married to Leah, Bilha, and Zilpha. And he has children with these other three wives. And finally, when Jacob is 91 years old, he has a son by Rachel, Joseph. The history is important because it helps to explain the story of Joseph himself. He was the loved and privileged child because he was the love child of Jacob and Rachel. He was the love child because they waited until they were in their senior years. And we'll see even in the reading today, he was loved because he was a child of the old age of Jacob. Now, Jacob did have another son to Rachel after this, which is Benjamin. Now, that happened, I think Benjamin was only four or five at the time when Joseph was about 17, as you'll see in this story here today. So he would have been 10 years, a little bit more than that, younger. But Joseph himself, is the firstborn to Jacob and Rachel, the love of his life. This is their firstborn child. And that plays largely into the entire destiny, in a sense, of Joseph. It's important because it explains Joseph's story. That takes us to Genesis chapter 37. We're going to read verse 1 to 11. Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was, a stranger, in the land of Canaan, This is the history of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers, and the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children, because he was the son of his old age. Also he made him a tunic of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, They hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. So he said to them, Please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were, binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright, and indeed your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers, 
and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. May God bless to us the reading of his word this morning. There are a few principles that we can take directly from this passage that are clear, that are evident, or that we may think are clear and evident. They're just straightforward principles. We can look at them and say, this is a principle. Don't marry four wives at one time. It's not a good idea. It's bad news. That's a principle you could take from this passage. Parents, don't show favoritism. That's a principle you could take from this passage. Jacob showed favoritism to Joseph. You look at his history. He should have known better than to show favoritism to Joseph. That's a principle you could take from there. Children, here's a principle. Get over yourself. Life doesn't always end up fairly. You can see that in this story. It's a principle. Life isn't always fair as we would like to call fair. Another principle, don't become angry or envious when someone else gets something that you don't. That's fairly straightforward here. Joseph got something the other brothers didn't. They were angry with him. Well, there's a good principle. Don't get angry when somebody else gets something that you want or that you don't have. Another principle, and this one is questionable, but it's still a, a true principle. It's just questionable whether it's from here. Sometimes it's better to keep your mouth shut than to say anything at all. Now, in the case of Joseph, he probably would have been better off to just keep it zipped, except that actually God had a purpose in him telling that. And that actually was to cause his brothers to be angry, which was to cause them to sell him so that he could one day deliver his people. But still a principle, a good principle would be sometimes it's better to just keep quiet rather than speak something which you know is going to incite someone else to anger. Another uh, good principle would be consider your audience, (laughs) who you tell things to. It probably wasn't the wisest thing. If he wants to consult what this dream meant, maybe the first place you should have went was just to his dad instead of to his brothers. But he goes to his brothers first and he tells them and the meaning is fairly obvious. So consider your audience. Those are all good principles. And there's probably a few more that we could come up with. I want to take a slightly different direction and spiritualize it a little bit. What does it say to us about our relationship to God? What does it say primarily to us? And yes, we'll look at that aspect of of to God or about God, but what does it say to us? The title of my message this morning is a little bit different. It says, stop blaming your circumstances. Stop blaming your circumstances. Stop blaming your situation or how life, your life is and your attitude. Stop blaming it on your situation, or your circumstances. And we'll see why I'm using that as the title, particularly as we get to the end of it. Basically, if we look at this passage, we can divide it up and we see God's grace is on Joseph and we can see his brother's response in anger and envy. If we look a little bit broader than that, and we will, we'll see some finer details, but that's kind of the gist of it. God's grace is on Joseph and his brothers are angry about it. So the first point would be God sovereignly extends grace as he chooses. Because now what we're doing is we're taking and we're looking at Joseph and then we're seeing, now how does that apply to us? What is the principle that we derive from this? God's grace or God sovereignly extends grace as he chooses. Joseph was favored. Joseph was loved. Joseph was special in that sense. He was favored by God and he was also favored by his father we see in verse 2 that Joseph is in a position of privilege. Remember, God sovereignly extends grace 
as he chooses. We are not in control of that. He was 17 years old, verse 2. He's serving. He brings back a bad report. And then verse 3 says, Israel loved Joseph because he was a son of his old age. We continue to see the privilege or the position of privilege that Joseph had. 17 years old. Now, we, we skip over or we read quickly through verse 2, but where it says that he brought back a bad report of his brothers to his father, that actually is saying he was in a position of privilege, a position of responsibility. He was actually to bring back a report about his brothers to his father. It's also speaking of Joseph's integrity, that at 17 years old, he would be trusted by his father to bring back a report on his older brothers. And it speaks a bit to his purity, that he would say, yes, they are doing something which is wrong. Now, his older brothers would have been upwards of eight to, and, and beyond years older than him, eight, nine years and, and up. So they were significantly older than him at 17 years old. You know, you're talking late 20s um, and older. And his older brothers had already been in a pile of trouble. If you read back in the last few chapters in Genesis here, you see some of their history. That was not a, a friendly group, his brothers. They were not a polite group. They were a rude, crude, base, violent group. And yet Joseph is assigned the responsibility and is listened to by his father when he brings back this report. So it speaks of his integrity. It also speaks of his position of privilege. His brothers, they had been involved in incest, murder, violence, kidnapping. Uh, this was a, not a good group. Jacob had had issues with those brothers. They'd already destroyed his reputation. If you look back in Genesis 34, Reuben himself, who had been the firstborn of Leah, who would actually technically be the firstborn of the family, had been excluded from the position of firstborn because he had committed incest with his stepmother. So this was not a nice group of guys. But we see Joseph in a position of privilege. Privilege and responsibility and trust. Verse 3 says that he was loved more. Rachel's firstborn son, which would make sense as to why Jacob and Rachel loved him all the more. He was born in Jacob's old age. He was his pride and joy. We see also in verse 3 that he was given a tunic of many colors. And normally what we think when we picture that is just, oh, he had a really, really flashy coat on. Well, and maybe it was. It most likely was. It had various colors in it. But it literally was a shirt with long sleeves and long hem at the bottom. It would have been more like a priest's gown than it would have been like a workman's tunic. So it was colored and it probably would have been ornamented. And it wasn't just a sign of favor in the sense that I really like you, so I'm going to get you a really expensive coat. It was a sign of his position of authority, that he was not a field worker like his brothers were, but that he was actually an overseer of his brothers. And also that he was the heir of Jacob. This marked him out as a man of authority, as someone who did not get his hands dirty. That's why he had the long sleeves. Didn't have to worry about that. He was an overseer. Position of privilege. It marked him. It marked him basically as the chieftain of that, what would have been a tribe or a group. As the head, as the overseer, as the chosen one by Jacob. This would have been a huge deal in their culture and in their time. So we see not only is Joseph receiving all of this 
privilege, which he is. But we also see that Joseph is favored not just by his dad, but he's favored by God himself. And he has no control over this. It's not as if he said, okay, I would like to be more favored than my brothers. It was something that happened to him. He had no control over the place of his birth, the time of his birth, the fact that he was born when Jacob was 91, the fact that he was born of Rachel and Jacob. There were things that he had no say over. And yet they were part and parcel of God's favor upon him. Place of his birth, the time of his birth. He had no control over this dream or the dreams. It wasn't as if he, it was volitional. It wasn't as if it was of his own will. This is a mark of God's favor upon him. The first dream wasn't volitional. Had the second dream, still not volitional. And the first, second dream solidifies the first. God caused the dreams. God is the one who chose him. God is the one who called him. God is the one who spoke to him. God is the one who made promises to him in these dreams. These are not things he could muster up. So we see very, very clearly, both in regards to his father, but also in regards to God, that he was favored. He was in a position of grace or of, of favor with his father and with God. And don't get caught up in the dreams there. God still speaks, but he speaks through his word. He speaks through his Holy Spirit, and he speaks through God's people far more than he speaks through dreams. But the meaning of his dreams were obvious. Even to his brothers and to his father, it was blatant. He dreamed these dreams and he goes and he tells it. And something that I would like you to notice is that in these dreams and in the telling of them, there is no wrong applied to Joseph. A lot of people look at this and they say, well, he should have just not dreamed those dreams or he should not have told those dreams or he did it with a mean spirit. And yet as you read through this chapter, you don't see that at all. Actually, it's almost as if he is without guile. He's innocent. He's naive, maybe, we would say. But he's just speaking truth as he has come to understand it. He has had these dreams and he's sharing them. There's not a vindictive side to this, which many people would like to think that there is. Because there's no mention of Joseph being wrong or being a talebearer or even actually of inciting his brothers to their anger. Even the bringing back of a bad report of his brothers to his father. There is no record of wrongdoing in Joseph here. This position of privilege and of God's favor, it was laid upon Joseph and there was no sin in him in having received that or having been chosen for that. This was God's doing, both in the position of favor with his father and in position of favor with God. God chooses whom he chooses. God will do as he desires and he is right in that God pours out grace on whom he chooses to pour out grace and he is just in doing so he is never unjust in pouring out grace on who he chooses Romans chapter 9 verse 15 and 16 for he that is God says to Moses I will have mercy on whomever I have mercy and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion so then it is not of him who wills it's not of us who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. God is sovereignly in control. And God is right and fair and just and true in dispensing grace and mercy as he chooses. He is in control. God could justly destroy all of mankind for our sin and rebellion. He could justly destroy you for your sin and rebellion, and yet he has poured out his grace upon you. If you've come to know him as Lord and Savior, you've accepted the shed blood of Jesus Christ on your part, then you know the grace of God. He has extended favor to you. He has extended grace to you. 
It's not of your own doing. Because if you were left to your own doing, you would be condemned eternally. We are dependent upon Him. We have come to know His salvation. We are, and there are many similarities between ourselves and Joseph. We are an heir of eternal things, aren't we? As Joseph. There's, it's interesting because Joseph is actually a picture of, of two things. He's either a picture looking forward to Jesus Christ, and there's some that have written actually 141, I think, comparisons uh, or pictures of Christ in Joseph. But he's also a picture of the believer today. And that's where I want to take it as far as a principle. We have received favor of God, haven't we? We have come to know the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Position of privilege. Generally and corporately, we are blessed incredibly. But we are also individual recipients of God's unique blessing and favor. We've come to know that grace of salvation, but we've also been endowed. We've been granted gifts of God's grace, each one of us individually and uniquely. It's not the same. Not the same for each of us. We see that when we look in Ephesians, talking about spiritual gifts. It's given as the Holy Spirit wills to each one, absolutely. But it's different. God has poured out His grace upon us. Some seem to have more of God's grace poured out upon them than others seem to have. Just the same as you looked in the story of Joseph. Here was a man who was a recipient of God's grace in a, a powerful way, in a miraculous way, in a, just a sovereign control way that maybe the others weren't. God is sovereign. God sovereignly extends grace as he chooses. And he is right and just and loving in that. Not only that, but he is perfect. He's perfect in that. He is perfect in whatever and however he extends his grace. God is sovereign. He is able to extend grace as he chooses. And we, we are privileged. If it was a right, it wouldn't be grace. We are privileged that we have received God's grace. God sovereignly poured out his grace upon Joseph, and God was right in it. God has sovereignly poured out his grace upon you. Praise God, he's right in it. He's just in it. He's loving in it. He's merciful in his grace upon us. So that's the first point. God sovereignly extends grace as he chooses. Secondly, and this is where it ties into us, we are responsible not for God's grace being poured out on our life. We are responsible for our response. We're responsible for our response. We can't always control our circumstances. We can't dictate them. There are certain things that are just beyond us. God's grace is one of those things. You can't control it. Praise God for that. He has extended it. We're responsible for what we do, for how we respond to his grace. We can't control his grace upon ourselves, nor can we control his grace or the extension of it upon others. We can control our response to his grace to us and to his grace to others because the only thing we truly can control is our response in this situation. Sometimes we're fortunate enough that we can have some control over the circumstances or situations, but many times in life we can't. But we can always control our response to those circumstances or situations. Do we get, as the saying goes, do we get better or bitter to the circumstances? Maybe it's not the bad circumstances in our life as much as it is God's grace in somebody else's life. 
do we get bitter or better because of that? How is our response about God's grace being poured out? Or what we may think is the lack of God's grace being poured out. We don't understand the sovereign control of God and not pouring out his grace in this situation. We can't control that. But we, our response can be. Do we have peace in our life and as we look around us? Or do we have anger in response? Look at Joseph's brothers. Perhaps they're already mad because Joseph told their father the truth about their actions in verse 2. We don't know that. He did tell them the truth about his brothers. Absolutely. It wasn't a good report. It wasn't a whole lot good to say about them. Whether that was the seed that began their envy and hatred, we don't know. But look in verse 4. In verse 4 it says, They hated him because he was preferred. They hated him because of grace that he had received. It says they could not speak peaceably with him. They couldn't even greet him with the customary shalom, peace. That is quite remarkable. They couldn't even speak a word of peace. That's how angry they were with him. Why? Was it because of something Joseph had done out of his own will, volitionally? No. It was because of something that happened to him. God had intervened and his father had shown favor to him. And they were angry because of God's grace and the Father's favor upon him. Look at verse 5. It says they have a, he had a dream and it says they hated him even more. Verse 8, the second dream. They hated him even more for his dreams and his words. His words were not wrong. His dream was not wrong. But they hated him even more. That's three times it says they hated him even more after the first time saying they hated him. And then one last time. At the end, it says they envied him. Do you get a picture or a sense of this building resentment and bitterness and anger? We don't know how far back this had gone. There's obviously family problems. There's a major breakdown in this family. You have three different groups, four different groups of brothers because of four different moms. And you have relational issues between Jacob and each of his wives. There was a lot of history and there was a lot of baggage. But did Joseph have any control over that? He had no control over that. And yet they hated him for it. What had Joseph done? What had Joseph said? Maybe it was the way he said it. And yet the passage gives no indication of that. Maybe it was his attitude. And yet once again, we have no indication of that. No, they were angry. They hated him because of his blessing. They hated him because of God's grace. They hated him because other people, people looked at him favorably. Hated so much that in verse 18, a little further in this chapter, it says they conspired against him to kill him. They say, look, the dreamer is coming. Come, therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit. Even Joseph's own father didn't respond well to God's favor on Joseph. He rebuked him for the dream that he had. It wasn't as if he could control the dream that he had. It was given to him by God. And he questioned him for it. What do you mean to tell me? Your mother and father and your brothers are going to bow down before you. It wasn't of Joseph's volition. It wasn't of his will. It was of his grace that he had received from God and his favor from his father. How do you respond to God's grace? It's a rhetorical question. I just want you to think about it. How do you respond to God's grace or the lack thereof in your own life? Or what you perceive as the lack thereof in your own life? How do you respond to God's grace being poured out on others? Maybe when it's not poured out on you. 
the way you would like it to be. Or it's not poured out the same way on you as it is on others. Do you respond as the brothers did? It goes to show it because I know the answer of your heart. (laughs) Because I know the answer of my heart. Is that when somebody else gets a special blessing of God's grace that I don't get, I'm prone to be envious. It might be a beautiful thing. So what makes it so difficult is you see this beautiful thing, this beautiful way that God has worked in somebody else. And we want to say that, oh, we're so happy for them, we're delighted for the way that God has worked, but too often the sad reality is that envy creeps in easily. I pray that it doesn't. I pray that's not an issue. Maybe that's not a struggle for you at all, that you see God's grace being poured out on others and you do nothing but celebrate and rejoice it. Praise God if that is the case. You're an exception. <laughs> that's where we need to get. We're rejoicing so much in Jesus Christ that we delight in his grace wherever it is poured. But too often I know that I, t- I have this tendency of responding like the brothers do. Maybe we don't struggle with that as much with believers. We're all one happy family, so we love it when other people are blessed. Maybe we struggle with it with the world. God, you seem to be permitting your grace on this heathen. <laughs> what is the deal with that? Why is it that believers struggle and suffer? I mean, we've looked at that time and time again. The ungodly, they seem to prosper. Are we envious of God's grace? It's good for us to examine our own heart. What about stepping maybe a little bit outside of specifics of God's grace? What about our circumstances or situations in general? Do you blame your attitude on what happens to you? Do you blame your attitude on what happens to others or doesn't happen to them if you want something really bad to happen to them because you think they deserve it? And then you're the one who's defeated, whose joy is sucked right out of you because of circumstances? Are you envious of God's unique goodness or blessing to others? Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23 says, Keep or guard your heart. Guard your heart with all diligence for out of it springs the issues of life. Examine your heart. Repent of your envy, of your anger, and sometimes of your hatred. And begin to delight in Jesus Christ enough that you delight when his grace is poured out, however that looks, whether on yourself or someone else. Whether you're the recipient of great blessing or not, we should all acknowledge that we are recipients of great blessing. But with or without them, guard your heart. God is in control, and he moves as he wills, and it is perfect and right and just. So rejoice. Have a heart like Joseph, without guile, without deceit, and seemingly without sinful pride as well. And trust God to do justly. And don't have a heart like his brothers who were envious and angry at another's blessing. Stop blaming your circumstances or your situations or your lack of God's grace or somebody else receiving God's grace and start trusting God is sovereign and just and perfect in all that he does. So two principles this morning from the first 11 verses of Genesis 37 in regards to Joseph. God is sovereignly in control. He gives grace or favor as he pleases and he is perfect in it. There is never wrong in what God does or how he does it. And two, we are responsible. Not for God's favor being bestowed or the lack thereof, but we are responsible for how we respond to it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. 
we thank you that you have extended favor to us. Not because we were any better, not because we were special in that sense, but just because you sovereignly chose to. And I don't understand why that works that way or how exactly that works. But because we have received the grace of God in Jesus Christ, we know that we are favored, we are privileged, we are blessed. We're blessed beyond our ability to comprehend. I pray that you'd help us to see that. But regardless of whether we see that or not or perceive that or not, may we respond well. When your grace is poured out, whether it's on us or somebody else, when we see what may be we think is a lack of grace being poured out, a lack of blessing, may we respond well. May we trust you in all things. May we rejoice in you. May our heart be guarded. May we be diligent in this area, diligent to surrender it to you and trust that the Holy Spirit will equip us to live as you please and to respond as you please and to feel even as you desire that we would. We thank you that in our actions, in our emotions, in every part of us, you desire to be in sovereign control and we ask that you would help us to yield and to live yielded, that we'd be pliable in your hands and pleasing to you. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.